Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Allison Rossiter. Rossiter is featured in Unseen, 35 Years of Collecting Photographs at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The exhibition shares photographs from the Getty's rich collection that have never been shown at the museum, including nearly a whole wall of terrific Rossiters. The exhibition was curated by Jim Gans in collaboration with the entire Getty photographic curatorial team. On March 6th, Yossi Milo Gallery in New York will debut new Allison Rossiters in Substance of Density. It'll be on view there through April 25th. Rossiter's been everywhere in the last couple years. She's been featured in group exhibitions at the George Eastman Museum, the National Gallery of Canada, the High Museum of Art, the McAvoy Foundation for the Arts in San Francisco, the New York Public Library, the Tate Modern, the Denver Art Museum, the Musée de Elysée in Lausanne, and the Center for Contemporary Photography in Melbourne, Australia. In 2017, Radius Books published Alison Rossiter Expired Paper. It's one of uh, the best photography monographs I've ever seen. Amazon offers it for $40. On the second segment, David Maisel joins me to discuss his new monograph, Proving Ground. But first, Alison Rossiter, after the break. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed-media panels. Also at the WEX, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents two major surveys during the spring 2020 season, featuring Paul McCarthy and Tishan Sue. On view through May 10th, Paul McCarthy Headspace, Drawings, 1963 to 2019, is the first comprehensive survey in the United States of drawings and works on paper by the Los Angeles-based artist. With 600 works on paper, spanning more than five decades, the exhibition reveals a rarely examined aspect of McCarthy's oeuvre. And on view through April 19th, Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit is the New York-based artist's first museum survey in the United States. Bringing together roughly 30 sculptures, drawings, and media work from 1980 to 2005, the exhibition reintroduces the work of a visionary artist who considered the implications of the accelerated use of technology and its impact on the body and human condition. Paul McCarthy Headspace Drawings and Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit are on view now at The Hammer. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant, at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Experience Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through April 19th. 
The artist Barry Exball reinvents traditional sculptural formats and existing art historical landmarks using state-of-the-art 3D scanning technology, computer-aided modeling software, and CNC milling machines in combination with centuries-old craft techniques requiring thousands of hours of detailed handwork. Barry Exball Remaking Sculpture is the artist's first major U.S. museum survey. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Allison Rossiter, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. It's wonderful to be here again. Your recent book from Radius, titled Expired Paper, includes a dedication to Bob Alexander, who you identify as your first photography teacher. Did he teach you how to use a camera, or did he teach you to love photographic paper or something else? He taught me how to understand a 35-millimeter camera, and to process film, and to then print that in a darkroom. And it was a six-week class in 1970 at the Banff Center School of Fine Arts in Alberta, Canada. Wow. So you must have been like, you know, a teenager. I was 17 years old and, and still in high school. And actually, I was at a girls' school, boarding school, on top of it. And so to be in a class with with men, boys, women, people of all ages, I I couldn't say a word. I was just mortified. And then there was this very nice, easygoing instructor who was clear, and we just wrote every word he said down in our notebooks, and he really treated me like a person, not a child in his class. And I just was captivated by this. Most recently, I, I saw a video by Kurt Vonnegut, and it's, I think the title is The Shape of a Story. And he tells a wonderful story, but at the very end, he asked the audience if they had a teacher in their lives who at some point, because of them, had changed their, their direction, opened up new material, whatever. And he said, if you do, tell that name to the person sitting next to you. It's the same thing when you ask me about Bob Alexander Whenever I give a talk about my work, I always give him a thank you. I would not be sitting here without him. You are best known now for the work you make with expired photographic paper, work you've been making for 13 years, and we're going to come to that in a minute. But I want to start in terms of your oeuvre earlier with, with what you were making before you started working with expired paper. The earliest work of yours that I have seen, at least digitally, is from the 1990s. Take, take me back before that. What were you making and focused on in, in say, the 80s? Uh, well, I can even take you to mid-70s. I think one of the first bodies of work I ever did was in Carmel, California, going to Point Lobos with an Instamatic and black and white film. And I decided that I would take the walk around Point Lobos with Edward Weston in mind, with absolutely knowing my inability to ever walk around there with a view camera and try to emulate him, but I went around with an Instamatic. And the fuzzy, beautiful, panatomic X film just softened this 
experience. They're, they were absolutely wonderful. And the other thing I can say, if I say so myself, they were wonderful. They're gone. They're lost. I've lost them in, they're absolutely missing negatives, missing prints. But so now it's just an experience. But I would then jump forward to the 80s. I worked at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, teaching photography to the design students. And my background in photography education was the Rochester Institute of Technology. So I knew how to work in a studio. And it was my first brush with feminism at this college. And so I would collect props, take them into the studio and photograph them. And so I had a line of household implements, um, feather dusters, toilet brushes, sponges, ivory soap, dishwashing liquid, and I laid them all out on white sort of bridal satin and created basically a calendar of 12 pinup photographs of these implements of drudgery, very colorful, very happy with this sort of the ironic twist that it's all a dirty, nasty job. I would work in series like that. Always very simple. No matter what I was shooting, it would be sort of one thing in the center of the frame and with an appropriate background in the studio to try and give it another context. And then sort of in the late 80s, I shot for years and years trying to find extraordinary things out in the real world rather than in a studio. And none of it, I promise you, is worth looking at. So all in boxes, all, you know, but it kept me very busy. And by that point, I had moved to New York and from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I rented a color darkroom and had my first sense of community. There were other photographers renting darkrooms. And it, the work is terrible, but it landed me in New York with a sense of what was going on photographically in the city in the late 80s. Well, let me, let me, let me jump in there for a moment, because you said a couple things that, that, that jumped out at me that seem to still exist in the work today. So you very specifically described the, the gear you were using and the material you were using. And then yeah, when, when talking about the feminist work, feminist-minded work, which I hope still exists. Yes, it does. The idea of texture and surface in the picture being really important, which, which I think continues into the present in a really significant way. Do you know or remember what gave you your interest in those things, in the materials and gear you were using and surface or tactility? I took a photograph of a white ivory soap bottle plastic bottle in a kitchen in Montreal, where I was living at the time. And it's a four by five large format portrait of this soap bottle on a white counter, whatever. And I really liked the white on white, but that was a location. I decided that I would make my own white background by using satin for the series I just described to you, which was called the Bridal Satin Series. It was fun to go shopping for props, to figure out what backgrounds, and that would send me to, to fabric stores, mostly. The really simple combinations, like folded satin, immediately makes references that I would not be able to make any other way. So, so it's the combination of two things to hopefully make something larger. In those years, did you know Joanne Callis or her work? No, I didn't know her, and I don't believe I was aware of her work, certainly at that time, no. From Rochester, from RIT, 
where I was studying to be a commercial photographer, I switched into the art program and was luckily in between my RIT years, I spent one year in Banff as a full-time photo student when they opened a program. And I knew nothing. I knew few photographers. All I knew really how to do was process prints and who the commercial famous photographers were at the time. Avedon, Penn, Hero, people like that. So fine art photographers were a mystery to me that I, I picked up much later, um, further down the road. Because, you know, Joanne's early stuff is like, you know, if you're on the 50 yard line, she's on the 48. We used to be associated, have my name in the same sentence. So thank you. No, it, I lived in Montreal for a brief period, trying to learn to speak French. I'm terrible at languages. And I learned that I was terrible when I was studying. But I had a small studio apartment in Montreal. And I just didn't go out. I stayed in and I photographed everything in that apartment just with an intense focus because that was my world. And so there are portraits of fans, ironing board and the, the gas flame on my stove. They're really, uh, those two exist. And in fact, my very first photograph in the Getty collection was placed there because Sam Wagstaff bought one of my little four by five contact prints of my gas burner from that experience, my little apartment in Montreal. So this intense thing about domestic objects was really the result of being terrified to go outside and speak French. But yes, there were other people, yes, certainly doing work along the same lines. That picture, Stove, from 1981, is, uh, of course, still in, in the Getty collection. It's not up in, in the show that's, that's up now. But hearing you talk about this work from the 80s and how soaked in feminism it, it was and, and, and is, because the work still exists, you know, it reminds me, I don't, I don't know that this show has ever happened, but there were a lot of women who were photographers who were exploring feminism in their work at the time. I, I know you didn't know... Joanne Callis, who was working very much in the vein, in this vein, in, in California at the time. But was there a, a feminist cohort, cohort of artists or thinkers that you knew or were around or were being informed by? When I lived in Montreal in the 80s, it was certainly a topic of discussion among my friends. There's a photographer who was a great friend, Angela Grauerholtz, and I would go out on photo wanders and shoot different things completely. But we were so afraid that if we were called feminists, feminist photographers, we would be marginalized and not included in some things. So I remember that debate of, you know, well, you know, this could be dangerous territory. We didn't know what we were getting into. But yes, I had like-minded people doing video, photography, sculpture, sculpture that was a good thing too up there. But Really, when I moved to Nova Scotia in the early 80s, the, the Nova Scotia Press, College of Art and Design Press, was producing Martha Rossler material. The Semiotics of the Kitchen video was a great one. We all enjoyed that one. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you I saw that video before I did my thing. I, I couldn't swear to it, but again, it was in the air. By the end of the 1990s, you are making pictures of, I apologize for the shorthand, we'll have images on manpodcast.com, of objects or stuff on, on rich, 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 dark, dark, dark black backgrounds. 
How did you get from the feminist work to that work, which kind of has as a part of it, the void, something that I think very much continues in the recent work? Those are photograms. And they are photographs of books. And yes, that would have been in the mid-90s and 1997. And I just discovered using photograms with interest once again. And the books were just something that I thought would form a beautiful shadow. And I like the fact that there's absolutely no text. And each one of those books was identified by the title and the author. And so it's a very a quick read. You, you bring to that title what you know about that book or what you assume is in that book. And I have to say, again, I was influenced and I did not immediately identify that I was influenced, but I saw the work of Louise Lawler, early work of hers, which is a body of, of photographs of record albums. And um, Louise Lawler was also up at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design as a visitor in the summers, and it was lovely to meet her. But she, the record albums were the exact same thing. She um, was titling them by their um, musician. And to me, it was the smartest thing I had ever seen. I did the books several years later and just kind of completely forgot that I had seen Louise Lawler's work. So as soon as I realized, and I slapped my forehead and thought, what am I doing? Of course, this is straight from Louise's. I you know, completely credited her with the influence. There's an abstract picture in that series, too, in probably more than one, but there's one that I know. It's at the National Gallery of Canada called Principia Number 14. Yes, that is, um, they're photographs of sand. Ah, I was guessing powdered sugar, but... <laughs> it's sand. It's actually sand from a very, well, different sand makes a different image. And the, that, the granular sand that I was using was from a beach on Cape Cod, and it's the beach where my father spread my mother's ashes when, when she died, when I was a child. There is no headstone, there's no burial, anything. So I just went as an adult to that beach and tried to photograph it without much success. But I just put a big scoop of the sand in a, in a bag and brought it home. And that's what I sprinkled on the photo paper. And to my surprise, it has a tonality and it looked like you know, astronomical events happening. So I made a, a bunch of those, a series of those, and Sarah Morthland showed them at her brand new gallery in Chelsea in 1997. And I did the book photograms of science books to go along with the Principia, the, the astronomical illusions. Illusion is a really good <laughs> word for it. I, well, the great thing about the word illusion is, is when you say it out loud, it can be spelled with an A or an I. There, there's an Emersonian word game there. Is this about when, in the, in, in the late 1990s, mid to late 90s, when you started working directly with photographic paper in the way you would come to in the aughts? In the early 2000, I, I had been working with photograms, just black and white paper, nothing, no modulation whatsoever. And then I decided, rather than just continuing with photograms, because you have to be really smart and clever and find a really good subject for them to be interesting, there are a lot of not-so-interesting photograms, I thought, well, I'll just skip the object and I will just use flashlights and I'll just put light on the paper. And this, too, has a precedent. And many years before, in Nova Scotia, I saw a rolled-up 
drawing that was made with flashlights by the artist Eric Fischel. And I believe it was a performance piece that was done in the very early 80s, possibly late 70s. And he gave it to someone and that was and that someone, that friend of his, showed it to me. And it was a perfectly drawn dog. And this is just a man waving a flashlight. I don't know how he drew such a beautiful suggestion of a dog. That never left me. And so when I was tired of doing photograms, I thought, I'm going to try my hand at, at flashlights. And I drew one or few things, two things in my darkroom and decided really the only way to sustain my interest was drawing, trying to draw something was for me to try and draw a horse as I did when I was a child. So that launched a body of work of horses. And rather than just doing scribbling in the dark, because in a dark room, if you wave a flashlight, you don't see the actual line form. That only happens in the developer. I started soaking my paper in the developer first, taking it out, putting it against a piece of plexiglass, and then I would start to draw with the flashlights. And wherever I waved the flashlight, a swath of darkness would appear. Where And if I touched the paper, it would be a very fine point. If I pulled the flashlight back, it would be a softer edge. It was very much like using watercolor pigments on a wet sheet of watercolor paper. It was very much like that. And I decided that I would... I had better pay attention to what horses really looked like. So I, I went to art historical references. And so I would draw a Goya horse or a Velasquez horse or a Da Vinci horse, you name it. I, I, I got them all. I had a wonderful time doing it. And some of those still exist. It was a small body of work. Just last year, the Morgan Library shoe, showed um, a Goya horse in a group exhibition. It was fantastic. So long story short, that's where I started paying attention to what large areas of exposed paper, what they could do without a negative. And it really was from playing with the flashlights that I would pay attention to this beautiful background. And at that point, I started volunteering at the Metropolitan Museum in the conservation department. I realized that my materials were all gone and I called them. I, I have in my notes that was about 2003. Yes, yes. I called first Peter Mastardo at The Better Image to ask him how one goes about becoming a, con a conservator. And um, when I was a student, when I was a teenager or whatever, the field didn't exist. And when I was 49 and asking this question, it was a pretty hard field to break into. So I realized quickly that wasn't going to happen for me. But he said, please, please um, speak to my partner, Nora Kennedy at the Met. She may have more to tell you. And I had a lovely conversation with her, basically the same thing as with Peter Mastardo. And at the end of the conversation, I thanked her. And she said, well, wait, wouldn't you like to come see the lab? And I never would have asked her. And I went and saw the lab, saw what they were doing. And I noticed that they had volunteers. I wrote to Nora afterwards and said, I will empty your wastebaskets if you will let me be a volunteer in your department. And about three months later, she said that there was a position open if I was interested. I became a fly on the wall in the conservation department for about two years. By 
watching what was going on in the photograph conservation department, I saw that one of the young conservators had done her master's degree by studying one paper. It was a paper called Satista. Her name is Lisa Barrow. And it was a terrible paper, but it was used by important people, Paul Strand and Alfred Stieglitz. So, so conservators are stuck with trying to deal with this. But I didn't know that you could study a paper. And then I found out that there was a conservator who was collecting papers. And it wasn't long after that that I started my own collection on eBay. When you were at Nova Scotia, did you know Jackie Windsor? No, she was not there at my time. I, I started in 1982. I don't know when she was there. Benjamin Buclow was head of the press. The first summer I was there, I met Douglas Crimp. I met Sherry Levine. These people were coming up to do a panel discussion. Panel discussions were very big at the time. Alan Sakula was doing a project at the press. I mean, I, I landed in a conceptual hotbed and I had and I had no idea what they were talking about. That's really, honestly, I, it was uh, my learning curve. I learned very quickly and by the seat of my pants what was going on in the contemporary art world. I could teach someone how to process film, but I did not know how to direct their aesthetic, you know, curiosity. So to continue a bit with that experience of the Met, do you think anything from working around paper from from or thinking about a conservation point of view stuck with you and ended up in the work four years later when or two two to four years later when you started making your exposed paperwork in 2007? Yes, absolutely. I First of all, I didn't know any of this was available. When I first started using eBay, I was actually buying used sheet film, old 8x10, strange 5x7, you name it, European-sized sheet film, because it no longer existed. I wanted to do a photogram series about sheet film because each sheet of film has a notch code, and the notch code in a particular place on the film tells you what kind of film it is and whether or not it's pointing in the right direction toward the lens or away from the lens in the camera, whatever. Someone sent me a box of paper in a shipment of film. I wasn't thinking about photo paper at all. And it was this magnificent box of a 1946 expiration date of a Kodak paper. I tested one sheet of it and it looked like a graphite drawing. It looked like a completely finished conceptual drawing, like Via Selman had just done this drawing. So let me jump in for a quick second. When you say tested it, how did you test it? I tested it by, to find out if a paper is viable, I would take a sheet from the very center of the stack, the sheet that would be the least possible for exposure to light, and then in my darkroom, under safe light, I would develop it, stop, fix it, turn the light on. If it was a clean, beautiful paper, it should be white. It should be indicating that it never received any exposure, and then I could turn around and print my negatives on that material. This was a gray sheet of paper that looked like someone had rubbed a pencil over a rough surface. To me, it looked like an intentional drawing 
And what it actually told me was that the emulsion was failing. The silver salts in the emulsion could no longer maintain their stability to be able to produce a beautiful black and white photograph, full range. It was failing in the box without even having the lid open. It was just changing in the dark. And to me, that was very exciting because it meant that there is potentially a strange image in every used or every box of old paper. And at that point, I could go to eBay and every day there would be something from 1903, 1911, possibly something from the 20s and 30s, every day available for $3, $4. And I couldn't help myself. I just, I, I took over the market. Yeah, I know I bumped a few people and they were not happy because in those days you knew who you were bidding against. Yeah, you weren't just a number, you were actually a name. So is that first picture Eastman Kodak Codabromide E3? Yes, it is. It is. And it's the first image in the book. And it's an 8x10 and it just has striations in it. And it's just the color of graphite. And to someone else, this would have been ugh, you know, it, a mistake and thrown away. But it was, for me, thrilling. This, really, it was one of the most exciting moments I've ever had in a darkroom. So that launched this project. At the risk of asking a simplistic and emotional question, how long did it take you and why did you realize that this wasn't a one-off, that this was a, a, an exploration that was sustainable? By buying the next few packages of paper. When they arrived in my, at my little post office, I would go straight back to my darkroom and see what was there. And because really early papers were available at that time, it is these beautiful papers that are 100, now 120 years old, that are the most likely to have this kind of, to have a record of their experience, meaning there's going to be oxidation on the edges of the paper and so they'll be, they're silver mirroring all the way around for the most part. These papers still react to developer. They may go just completely black in the developer, but they still react to it. So there's a life to these papers and the paper stock themselves itself is so beautiful and so unlike the 1970 paper I was introduced to in that Banff, Alberta photo class what a photo print looked like in 1900 is very different from what a photo print still from a darkroom would look like in 1990 or even today there are still companies making photo paper but they're full of optical brighteners and the contrast for the emulsions are such that are really exaggerated tonal ranges in the early stuff it was pretty simple and, um, and it is that beautiful simplicity that I like and find. I don't want to neglect the actual physical objects, the, 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 the paper and how, how it looks and how it kind of visually feels. Were you interested, I, I mean, I understand you were interested in the results you could get from the paper, but was there anything about the tactility or the feel or, or the weight of the paper that you responded to and found motivating? The papers, for the most part, were 
a very thin stock, as thin and fine as the best writing paper, really. I believe that papers that were produced for the amateur market before World War One were basically from maybe three papermakers in Europe, and the paper was sent over, and it's 100% rag, and the tonality physically, they're small. They're, first of all, tiny papers. They were designed for amateurs to print one negative at a time, contact printing, in your house, with a gas lamp, or outside, in the sunlight, a different kind of paper. But So they're tiny. You hold them, I hold them in my hand, and it's, it's an intimate experience. I always think that I was gypped because in the 70s, I, you know, the choices that were available in the early 1900s were vast. And when I came to photography, I still had plenty of choices. Now people have maybe, you know, three papers to buy. It's an experience to touch these papers and develop them. And I made sure that when I was presenting them in an exhibition, they are hinged in all four corners. They are not dry mounted. This is an object. The paper itself, you absolutely can imagine its tactility. It curls, it, it, it's a gelatin material, it responds to humidity, it relaxes when it's humid, it's, you know, it curls up when it's dry. They are very lively. So yes, touching them, holding them, admiring them is, is part of my pleasure. One of the wonderfully weird things about looking at the work, I'm going to feel immediately stupid after I say this out loud, is that it looks heavy. <laughs> the pictures and the papers look like they have a lot of weight within them. <laughs> it depends on which ones you're looking at, really. Yes, it does. The nice but... thing about this, seeing them is the best experience. The book is extraordinary. The tones are very similar. But again, it's a flat printed page. It's a different object. Yeah, I mean in person. Yeah, in person, I mean that they look, even the small ones, like the little three by four inch ones, look, look like they have weight. Well, I'm glad they do because that's their sculptural aspect. You know, they're little tiny Richard Serra's. <laughs> there is some of that there. The surface feels so industrial in, in, in many of them, not all of them, of course. We talked before early on about your interest in the history of the medium and how you were kind of, you know, in the 80s and 90s, going back to processes from the 20s and 30s. When did you, when, when and how did you come to think about bringing the history of the medium into, uh, into the paper, the paperworks? It really came from collecting the actual papers. This was, I, I bumbled into this. I, I, this, I did not set out to do this. I just wanted to get my hands on these papers, and they led me in a fabulous direction. What I saw with collecting different decades is that from several countries, not just the United States, papers from Europe, the labels were amazing. They were fascinating. They looked like currency, actually, such attention to the labels and the logos for the companies. Let me let me jump in for a quick second. There is in, in the back of the Radius book, Expired Paper, a a fold-in, no, it's not a fold-in, it's a, a little booklet, I guess, in, in, in an envelope in the back cover of the book, and it's pictures, it includes pictures of these, these boxes, spotlighting both their physicality and materiality, but also, you know, very much, their graphic design. 
So um, I encourage people to the book. We'll try to get one or two pictures of these for, for, for the show page on the website. But I encourage people to the book to, to see what you are now describing. Sorry, I'll shut up. No, no, very good. As I collected, I now have, I have papers from the 1890s all the way through the 20th century, something from every decade. And if it did not have a specific expiration date on it, as most American papers do, then I can date them by their company history from the European papers. And what I get to see is the entire production, the commercial production of amateur photography paper laid out on a table. It's the history of commerce. It's the uh, far more than just the history of photography. It has the other aspect of being, this is an object that was for sale. This was an object for um, uh, someone like me to take home. And So we're going we're gonna to come back to history and, and chronological history a little bit later on because it exists within a couple of bodies of work and installations on which you've been working. But before we do, on, on which you've been working recently, I should, I should add, but, but before we do... You were you were on the show in in 2015, almost exactly five years ago, the week that this will air in 2020, actually, and we'll have a link to that on on the show page. It's uh, it's you know it still fascinates me, and I've probably heard it 20 times. And one of the things that we talked about is how and why you brought images to this exposed paper, and you talked on the show about how you realized you could recognize the work of abstract painters and such in the work, such as Barnett Newman, because, you know, there might have been a cardboard line in the box that then came out on the paper, if you will. How did you and when did you go from maybe recognizing accident to bringing intentionality into the work where you're addressing specific abstract painters? There are clearly two directions in in my work with the expired papers. And the first is to simply develop the sheets in the package in my darkroom to see what's there, to see what atmospheric damage has done to this paper over time, over decades. As So each package is sort of like its own camera, and I process that, that image, that latent image that's just been sitting there. And then I found that I would have packages of paper that would only go black in the developer I wasn't going to get anything subtle out of them. And those are papers that I decided that I would selectively develop. I would allow myself to then put marks on the paper that were intentional. So that way I would dip maybe an inch of this five by seven inch paper into the developer to form a very distinct black line on an edge. And then I would stop and fix it. And so what remains would be this very beautiful black line on one side of the sheet and then an entire white field where there had been no development, there had been no exposure. And so that's when I realized that, oh, geez, it's a Barnett Newman. Or I would start forming one of the earliest intentional things I did to make an image was I wanted to make a circle in the middle of a white sheet. And it's very hard to get liquid to stay in the center of a white sheet. So I made lots of messes, then realized that, okay, that's not going to work, but I could do a semicircle on one page and then make a companion piece of another semicircle on a second sheet and present them as a diptych. 
And so I would allow the developer to just pool in a semicircular way, rocket around a little bit, and then try and make a companion piece in the same, in basically the same area. And those I called pools just because they're, the chemistry is flowing in that sort of way. And that too was inspired by seeing a Tony Smith show of drawings at Matthew Mark's gallery many years ago. And I realized that Tony Smith had done graphite drawings, let's call them 20 by 24 inches each, and he covered a wall with them. And I knew, or I assumed, that they weren't drawn to be necessarily adjacent to each other. You could shuffle them around, and his drawings would still relate to one another. And to me, that was exciting. I stood in front of his drawings and thought, I can do this with photo paper. I th well, I think I can do this with photo paper. And that's where the pools began, was relating one sheet of paper to another. And if they don't match perfectly, that's fine. They are, you're forming a relationship, not necessarily perfection. That's an experience of seeing another artist's work that it's just great when it happens. It doesn't happen often, but once in a while, I will just be stopped in my tracks by something I see in another artist's work. So that idea must have stayed in the work because you would continue to make polyptych, is that a word? Yes. For years, and then it continues in the chronological work we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> Yes, the quads. The quads are the sort of, the, you know, the reduced nickname for the groups of four. Rather than a pooling formation of a circle, I then started dipping paper repeatedly and forming geometric shapes on one sheet and then making a companion sheet. And then I learned how to make a little mid-tone so that there was some reference to a shadow it's all really simple stuff in the darkroom. It really is just holding a sheet of paper and dipping it long enough for a very dark area to form a tide line. And so in that sense, I would put four sheets of paper together to make one geometric shape balancing on top of another geometric shape. And in that way, I feel like I'm a sculptor. I'm a sculptor through my photographs. Oh, that's interesting because I the quads feel to me very, very much like addresses of Solowit. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, not specifically, really, not intentionally, but yes, what an artist. What I was trying to do is it really, how do you make something with such limited tools? <laughs> really, I've got a tray of developer. What can I do? <laughs> so being able to form a square, a triangle, whatever, that's to me an accomplishment with these old papers. So have you taken aim at specific painters or, or specific photographers for that matter? But I think the painters are more present. Have you taken aim at specific painters in, in, in the work? Well, yes. Richard Serra, I have to say. I saw a Richard Serra drawing show at the Metropolitan Museum a number of years ago that really I came around a corner and just saw this spectacular oil stick drawings. They are massive. And what he did was he was drawing on sort of a, a, some beautiful paper stock that with a slight cream color to it. And what I noticed that was that where the oil stick stops and an expanse of the white paper exists, 
the oil wicks, the oil from the stick sort of wicks up into the white paper. It's not part of the image, but it's something that it's a byproduct of his process. But I liked the fuzzy oil line that was formed. So I then went to my darkroom and pre-wet some paper, believing that the developer would wick if I put this sheet into the developer, having treating it like watercolor paper. And so that fuzzy line that I have is absolutely a response to something that I saw in Richard Serra drawings. I'm not trying to make Richard Serra drawings. Mine are actually quite small, <laughs> but I tip my hat. Uh, let's talk about the landscapes. I'm a landscape nerd. How could we not talk about landscapes? You, you, you know, you call them landscapes. There, you know, this isn't a reading in. And there are lots of different kinds of landscapes. There's seascapes. There's the classic Western form of the overlapping mountains receding into the distance that you reference in these. There's the trees reflected in in a lake, kind of Emersonian standard. An enormous amount of intentionality in these in these pictures. How did you think through what landscapes within the history of art and particularly photography you wanted to include and and address in the series? Well, again, it's um, the associations come after the work work is made, not before. I found that if you look at a piece of horizontal paper, you know, foreground, black foreground, that's from holding it in the developer for a particular amount of time until it forms a black, and then a very quick dip to form another hill, or what looks like a hill, if you look at it, it just looks like a landscape if you hold it horizontally. Hold the same image vertically, it's an abstraction. But I liked the illusion of hills, and those were the first that I made. And the papers I used are so beautiful that they look like drawing papers. They look like ink drawings. The papers are, some are from the turn of the century, and they're, they're, they were novelty papers sold through Sears Roebuck. And they have a texture that looks like a fine art paper, something for etching, something for drawing. They do not resemble little photographs. So you know, it just helped to use that kind of paper with this very simple illusion, again, of a landscape. And then I thought, and that's just taking a dry piece of paper and dipping it into the chemistry. I also thought that I would try the wet approach again. So I would pre-wet the paper in water and soften it up. And then that's what the lake imagery, um, it looks like a lake. It looks like a lake with a tree tree line and whatever, but that's just from dipping a little bit of a paper, a, a developer on the paper, rocking it back and forth so it forms the tree line, sort of the horizon line. And then I would dip half of that paper back in the developer and let it drain. And that becomes the lake body. It's, again, really simple stuff in the darkroom, just dipping a sheet in the chemistry. The surprise was how accurate the illusion was to looking like a lake and people say oh it looks like a lake i used to go to when it you know so wait so once you realized you knew how to do that once you taught yourself that that would work you didn't try to make specific kinds of landscapes you didn't try to make specific referential landscapes some of them and you know there's something that does look like edward steichen's trees of the pond reflection trees reflected in the pond no it, you can't i can't repeat it 
perfectly each time, and every paper behaves differently. Some of the lakes would have this beautiful shimmering reflection as the chemistry would just slide down the page. On others, it would make a terrible mess. And so I'd have to re-dip it into the chemistry and sort of create a darkened foreground. And really, I just, I got what I could get out of these things. And, it, and it's all happening within seconds in the darkroom. This is very fast image making. We are to some extent talking about accident without using the word accident. Did you at some point think through conceptually embracing accident um, or chance as part of the process? From the day I started, chance has been my companion in the darkroom and paying attention to mistakes. There's one landscape that has uh, in the book belongs to the Getty. It has a black hill in the foreground and then sort of a mottled midtone. There's a swirling in the midtone hill area. And to me, that was a mistake. I wanted a clean, even midtone. And so the swirling, I thought, oh no. And then I looked at it when the lights were on. I thought, wow, how can I do that again? It just, these things happen. The mistakes are what lead me in the next direction. I'm, I'm grateful for every mistake that I've ever made. Maybe we should be talking more about editing then. How do you select what papers, what works get seen and, and, and perpetuate? And how many papers that you play with and do things to end up, you know, in the round file? You know, I save everything, but I, I, I have boxes like big cardboard boxes, not, you know, archival boxes. I'm talking, you know, packing boxes full of the mistakes or the ones that didn't quite make it. And then in, in my studio here in Chelsea, I have boxes of things that almost made it and they're all labeled the Salon de Refusé. <laughs> they don't quite stand alone by themselves, but they might work sometime in the future in some other capacity. And I'm very glad that I've saved all those. But how I decide if one works, if a landscape has, really, sometimes it's just proportions. If it has a straight horizon line and not a crooked one, then it's, it's better. <laughs> That's a good one. The crooked horizon line isn't working as well for me. So I don't, I, I want the illusion of landscape to work as well as it possibly can. And so if it's too messy chemically, it's not a successful one to me. It's the one that, you know, looks like an old pictorial image. I don't want messy chemistry. I could show you lots of bad stuff to show you how I have defined that term. The ones that are keepers, the ones that I will put on a wall and go into publication and whatever are ones that are very clean. It's instinct. What's a good one? To me, it just has to hit me right Coming into the present a little bit, in the last few years, you have been exploring chronological timeline in your work. I'll, I'll quickly run through two examples before asking about, about that. There was an installation you did at the New York Public Library in conjunction with the exhibition Anna Atkins Refracted. The, the NYPL acquired the work of yours and is co-publishing a book of it. And, and the other chronological series uh, relates to your winning the Spielman Prize from the Israel Museum, which you won last, no, I'm sorry, in 2018. 
and, and, and that proposal was to make a body of work using expired papers from England, France, Belgium, Germany, and the U.S. assembled in groups to form a chronology from 1918 to 1948. Of course, World War I ends in 1918. The State of Israel was created in 1948. So before we get into those two projects, what got you interested in chronology? What got you thinking about chronology and thinking it could be, air quotes, the basis for series of works? I um, have always wanted to go through my paper collection from start to finish, chronologically. Let me stop you just for a quick second. Could you give people an idea of how big that collection is and how much you have so we just have an idea of the universe? (laughs) Absolutely. Right now, I think I have probably 2,000 individual packages of paper or boxes of paper in my collection 1,800 of those have gone into a database so far, but they are really beautiful papers. I have probably 500 more that are papers from maybe the 1970s up to the present, or let's call it up to the turn of the century, 2000, completing the 20th century, that are not quite as interesting because they are younger papers. I'm interested in the older ones. And my paper collection begins with a package of paper that has a stamped date on the back of it. I believe it's November 7th. It says Left Works 1897. That means it left the factory in 1897. There were five sheets, I believe, in this package of paper. And when I got it, I knew how extraordinary it was that this had survived all these years. But I also had had enough experience in the darkroom that I I didn't want to waste it. And I was really reluctant to develop it. I didn't know quite how to use it. So my earliest papers waited for me for a long time. And it was an invitation from Joshua Chuang from the New York Public Library. He's a curator there. Yes, I beg your pardon. He is the senior curator of photography at the New York Public Library. In fact, his entire title is a real mouthful. He's a very important person there. But Josh invited me to think about the work of Anna Atkins and to participate in his contemporary exhibition, Anna Atkins Refracted, that was concurrent with the Blueprints exhibition, Blueprints, the pioneering photographs of Anna Atkins. And I thought, wow, what a lovely thing to think about. And he let me think about it for about a year before asking me anything specific. I really had a long time to mull this over. And rather than wanting to make cyanotypes, she is a hard act to follow, Anna Atkins. It was her collection that impressed me. She like me, had formed a collection of her botanical samples. And the cyanotype process was allowing, was brand new and was allowing her to present these samples in the exact form by making shadow prints of them rather than drawing. Before the introduction of the cyanotype process, she was drawing and a very accomplished draftsperson. But she learned the process from from a friend of her father, the man who invented it, Sir John Herschel. 
And she put it to work and she worked furiously. I mean, for 10 years, just nonstop creating these beautiful things. So with that as my example, when I thought of Anna Atkins, I thought of her presentation of her collection. And finally, it was my turn to present my collection. So for my participation in Josh's contemporary show, I decided that I would be brave enough now to address my earliest papers and process them. And I would go through the collection chronologically. And so I processed the first 20 years of my collection. So I started at 1898, went to 1918. And then Josh, when he came to look at the work, saw one from 1919 and he had to have it for the show. So, so the work spans, um, so these are 12 pieces that I'm talking about now. But what I did was process the papers at home and collect them and then lay them out by the years they represent and assemble them and assemble them not in collage form, but in assemblages where one piece of paper sit next to another piece of paper and maybe six, seven, four, whatever pieces can sit on one sheet and represent the years of the papers. Before, in my earlier work, I titled them by the type of paper, the date it expired, and the date that I processed it. It was an awful lot, again, a mouthful of a title, but I wanted anyone looking at it to see that it was a French paper that expired in the 20s, and I discovered it and processed it in 2011. So you could see the gap between this huge dormant period of when it was manufactured and when I discovered it and completed its process. But that, of course, was also a reference to the way photographers for years and photography historians for years had, had titled works, you know, Point Lobos, Monterey County, 1898. Yes. So that's exactly what I, the format I followed for that. Now I've decided that the papers are going to be identified by their dates in the title alone. My sheets of paper will represent 1911, 1942, 1948, and so that you think of the year when you look at it, but I am assembling them together chronologically. So there will be a group of them. For example, I'm just completing the Bauhaus years. So from, from all their three locations. So I have groups from the, the Weimar years, groups from the Dessau years and the one brief period when it was in Berlin. So that's how I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what happened in the world when I'm dealing with papers from those timeframes. So the work that was in the New York Public Library began in the 19th century and the dawn of a new century, very innocent times. And then World War I happened, the Great War happened. One of my pieces is 1914-1918. It has examples of papers from all of the years that represent the Great War. And they are the darkest pages that the sheets of paper I had that are silver mirrored and scratched and fogged. And they just make, oh, uh, uh, I think, an assemblage that stands for those years. So are those papers from those years? Yes, yes. If it's titled 1914 through 1918, 
every sheet of paper in that group stands for a different year. And included with the piece for the library on the back is a map. On the back of the frame is a map identifying each paper for what it is, whether it's a Kodak Velox or some other paper. And the specific year, there's a key, a map on the back of it, identifying the full information for the papers. Do you hope that either a viewer sees or that it exists within each grouping of this series, which is called Compendium? I should have mentioned that before. I'm sorry. Do you hope that as a viewer, you know, walks down the gallery wall or the hallway in which they were installed, that they would find associations or might have accessible to them if they chose to find associations with that period, with that year, with that industry, with the climate, with, you know, something that might be reachable about that place and time? In the the installation at the New York Public Library, another thing that I wanted to do in terms of um, referencing Anna Atkins was handwrite the labels. And so mm. below each one on the final installation, there are very small cards that identify 1900, um, 19, whatever, whatever the particular date would be, 1911 through 1913. So all I gave people was the date for those papers. There was a beautiful explanation, a statement at the beginning of the series on the wall, but for the most part, you just wander it like a timeline. And the positions of the frames is Josh's brilliance. This is Joshua Chuang at his best. I knew I wanted a timeline. We had, I mean, it was a timeline, but in my studio, they've always just been one particular line of prints chronologically. We had a limited amount of space. And Josh said, well, you know, there are points above and below a timeline. If you see one graphically represented, let's do the same thing. And the spacing is according to what would be the invisible line through the center of 1898 through 1919. Yeah, let me just let me jump in for a quick second. So some pictures are a little higher on the wall. Some pictures are a little lower on the wall. So they're kind of two levels. And then there's a central line that runs across the length of the wall, ran across the length of the wall. Well, there would not be a physical line. Not a physical line, but you could see you could see that there was an axis. Yes, yes. the axis is there. And he came up with that quickly, solved a wonderful problem. And it just has led to even better things happening in the future. Just looking at them and reading the tonalities of these papers, reading the ghosted images of a folded sheet or something, they are the most minimal marks there, but they are the marks that have been made by time. And so I am just identifying them by time. So the project for the Spielman Prize, which the chronology for that more or less begins with when the New York Public Library presentation ended, the Spielman timeline again is 18 to 48. What are you hoping will be represented or will be seen or be evident across that chronology, which is both longer and... And complicated. <laughs> well, and really also kind of covers a period when America was more involved in the world militarily and industrially than, than in the previous 20-year period. Well, I have many more papers from these periods as well. 
I had the good luck, good fortune to be nominated for the Spielman Prize. And so they require a proposal. And I had just finished the compendium series. And I thought I would just pick it up where compendium left off and begin with a new name. Compendium belongs to that body of work. Um, my new body of work is um, the substance of density. That's what I'm working on right now for these next three decades, which include the financial con collapse of the, in the United States and with repercussions worldwide, the Great Depression into World War II, out of World War II, and all the while, I've been processing papers from all of these years. Again, most of the processing has been American papers, but I'm filling in with my European papers now. But you will see the mood of the 1930s reflected in the tonality of prints that I present. I think it was a very dark decade, and I have papers that I am assembling now that will lead you through them. And it's more recent history so that it will mean something to people who have lived through these experiences. So 1918 starts with the end of the Great War. And at that point, Dada begins. And worldwide, you know, it was a terrible peace arrangement in Europe. And so it was no wonder that 20 years later, the whole thing blew up and or you know, in, in 1938, Hitler invades Poland. I mean, it's these things are going to be represented with my limited palette of tonality. And so you will see some beautiful light pieces that always, you know, indicate some form of hope to me. You'll be able to read it. I, I'm pretty sure you will be able to read the feel of the decade. And um, the papers increase in size as the years progress, because enlargement became the dominant factor in photography. So by the time I get to the 40s, I'm dealing with strange and large papers. I have just finished processing a roll, a Belgian roll of paper that was 49 inches wide and five meters long. I was given this as a gift by a Belgian photographer named Pierre Cordier, who is uh, well known for his work with um, chemograms, chimique. He, his work is in the Getty. He's in every major collection. But he heard of my work and made a gift to me of half of a role that he had. And the role was from the 1930s. It belonged to another photographer, Joseph Caillet. And he died and gave it to Pierre Cordier, and Pierre gave it to me. So just two weeks ago, I processed this paper, and they are enormous, and they will represent the 1930s appropriately. All of this work that I proposed for the Spielman Prize becomes reality and will be shown at the Yossi Milo Gallery in early March 2020. The show is also called Substance of Density. Yes, that opens very quickly, I think, March 6th. So in, in closing, assuming that working with exposed paper continues to hold your interest, do you have enough to keep going for as long as you want to keep going? Oh, I have, I have more paper than I will ever be able to use. And really, my intention 
the one time I ripped through an entire package of paper from the 1930s, I realized I had made a horrible mistake. I had just used a resource that yielded nothing, and I felt terribly about having done this, having wasted this. So now I save sheets of paper in all of these packages so that this collection is alive with paper. And the collection should have a formal home at some point. I am not quite finished with it myself, but I intend to place it. So someone studying papers will be able to look at this with their own fresh perspective. Alison Rossiter, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tyler, thank you. A new exhibition at the Getty Center showcases more than 200 never-before-seen treasures from the museum's extensive photographs collection. Unseen, 35 years of collecting photographs, spans the history of the medium from its earliest years to the present day and highlights visual associations between works from different times and places, encouraging visitors to make fresh discoveries. Learn more about this must-see exhibition at getty.edu. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th-century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, closing next Sunday, February 9th, at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tissot's spectacular world in James Tissot Fashion and Faith before it closes. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. Welcome back. My next guest is David Maisel, who joins me to discuss his new book, Proving Ground. The monograph presents aerial and on-site photographs made at Dugway Proving Ground, a military facility covering nearly 800,000 acres south of Salt Lake City. The U.S. government uses Dugway to develop, test, and implement chemical and biological weaponry and related defense programs. The book, from Radius, is an extended meditation on land use in the American West, secrecy, and the dangers present in that which we can and cannot see. I wrote an essay for it. Amazon lists it for $65. David Maisel, welcome back to the Modern Night Notes podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. What is Dugway Proving Ground and why did it interest you? Dugway Proving Ground is a classified military installation in the Utah desert where chemical and biological weapons and defense systems are developed and tested. I got interested in Dugway back in the early 2000s when I was doing an aerial photography project around the Great Salt Lake and encountered a munitions depot where, as it turns out, chemical weapons were being stored and incinerated. And that set off alarm bells for me, of course. <laughs> why, why are they here? What are they doing? Where is the ash from the incinerating incineration process going and where do they where do they originate from and as it turns out where they originate from is this military facility dugway proving ground in an area 
about 90 miles southwest of Salt Lake City in the Great Salt Lake Desert. I was interested in the idea of trying to get access there, but I assumed that it would never happen. Just the same way I might be interested in making photographs on Mars. You know, it just seemed like <laughs> there are too many barriers to working here, David. So just move along, right? But in conversation with an old friend about Dugway, he offered to try to help me gain access there. And in 2004, I believe, he made an initial inquiry to the Pentagon on my behalf. And the answer then was not now, which I actually took to be very encouraging. And so periodically, you know, we would check in with each other in, I believe, 2011, perhaps, 2012, he made an introduction to a gentleman named Richard Danzig, who had been secretary of the Navy. And from Richard, I was introduced to James Petro, who is the, I may get the title somewhat wrong, but James uh, serves in the Pentagon and is the head of chemical and biological weapons there. And James was receptive to my desires to, to work there and introduced me to the colonel in command at Dugway. And it was a long process, of course, a very long process, many, many uh, emails and phone conversations and many layers. But ultimately, uh, I was granted access to work there and was able to make photographs of weapons testing sites from the air, these rather immense sites that are kind of inscribed into the desert floor where historically different toxins and facsimiles of chemical and biological weapons would be released, as well as work on the ground and, and make some pictures in some laboratory environment there. Etc. So I was grateful, you know, to have that access, and and it kind of just continues this line of inquiry I've had about how we alter our environment, how we use our environment, particularly in the American West, and what sort of costs are involved there. And I think you know you're making the invisible visible, which happened in those Salt Lake pictures you mentioned making back in the early. 2000s or aughts or whatever we call that decade. Right, right. And I think that's the sort of through line with quite a lot of my work, even even the work that's not landscape, uh, projects like Library of Dust or History Shadow. It is seeking to see the kind of previously invisible or or the unknown. And so, yeah, a lot of the the sites I'm looking at in these aerial projects are, are either sites where we don't have access, like Dugway, Proving Ground, or sites that we might not know about, or they're so highly remote that that they really wouldn't be part of our understanding of the world, the physical world, you know, or of landscape. Like, how do we define landscape? So I think that to me is another kind of ongoing question is how do we expand our definition of what constitutes landscape, right? So we're, we're getting there, but it's very slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for Emerson, landscape was man-impacted nature, and, and Dugway sure fits that in part through what you described a moment ago as the way human presence had been inscribed on the ground, on the literal dirt at, at, at Dugway. There's, there's a grid inscribed on the ground there. Was that grid of particular interest, pictorially or otherwise? 
Yeah. And it was one of the main reasons as I started to research Dugway, it was one of the things that actually got me quite excited about the possibility of making pictures there because they refer to land art, actually, which fascinated me. They seem like these sort of minimalist, you know, solid drawings inscribed on the earth. But of course, they have a much more sort of politicized and poisonous function to them. They also are using the landscape as a measuring device, like that process of, of making these nested circles, these concentric circles, or these just enormous X's sort of carved into the landscape. The purpose of them is to measure these toxins as they disperse across time and space. So the land itself becomes a measuring device. That understanding for me took quite a while. Uh, it was a sort of a slow understanding that came to me but fascinated me and still really interests me that the the sort of tropes of modernism in a way are being used by the military as well so abstraction and repetition and seriality and the grid you know the grid the literal grid inscribed into the land and so they they also had this kind of feeling of the nazca lines you know so there's this way that they sort of ricochet back at, you know into different directions back in time forward in time and and they were they were really really fascinating to me and I, and it was one of the most complicated aspects of making the work there it was gaining permission to to look at these sites every single site of course was highly vetted by the military so i would have to sort of pitch them <laughs> some sites i was not permitted to to view or to photograph i had a representative from Dugway with me in the plane at all times and several, of course, with me on the ground as well. You mentioned the the grid and the scale. In your pictures, we also see that natural processes have taken place on the physical surface of, of, of the land, of the ground there, such as marks made by the flowing of water over time. Did the overlapping or coincidence of man-made and natural processes interest you, or was that, that a byproduct? I think in this instance, it was a byproduct. I, I kind of knew that it would be part of it. I mean, this is a really remote area. You know, Part of Dugway is used for certain military training exercises to simulate the terrain of Afghanistan and Iraq. So the landscape itself is... It's a tough, tough, tough environment, right? It's it's really remote. John McPhee, writing about the the region in Basin and Range, described the geology of the area as like the most inscrutable in the world. And so I was, you know, anticipating that. And I've worked in the area already. And actually, I think some of the natural processes that you're seeing that that may look like water are actually the result of of wind as much as anything because it's actually you know a fairly dry environment actually but it's a it's a it can be considered i think a pretty hostile difficult you know, landscape so for me most of what i spent my time on was sort of learning the history of the environment there to whatever degree i can or could you know what they're doing there now what aspects of secrecy are there. And then I think in the photographs, for me, it was looking closer, looking closer, looking closer. So in these aerial images, I'm inscribing my own grid on top of them. 
there's a three by three grid. So each aerial image of a weapons testing site ends up with this in an, it being a nine part grid, right? And as, as I'm printing them, each element of that grid is 40 inches square. So that the piece as a whole is more than 10 feet by 10 feet. And so there's this immersion, right? This immersion into the land. And yes, you're seeing these natural processes. You're seeing the roads that are surrounding these test grids. And you're seeing these processes of erosion. And you're seeing basically the desert hard pan surface, which seems lunar in a way. But also you're, become, they become highly abstracted too. And, and that, that process of abstraction really interested me. So when I started to assemble this material into book form, I wanted to treat these grids, these the military's grids, abstractly. So you first see the weapons testing site as a whole with this overlay of the three by three grid over it, the nine part grid. And then the subsequent spreads, you move through two aspects, two components of that grid at a time and these full bleed spreads. So actually, if you think about it, the space at certain points gets disconnected. So you might see the first two elements and from one row, and then the third element from a row, and then the, the, another element from the row below it. So that actually space gets recombined, just treated abstractly. And I, I was really interested in what just that as an experiment, you know, take take the military's abstraction <laughs> of landscape and, uh, and reapply it on top of these images, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I think one of the, the, the things about these pictures in which I get lost is that the places in them feel like a built environment, but there are almost no buildings. There's almost no conventionally built environment. Dugway is about 1,250 square miles, and it's part of uh, a broader complex of other similarly restricted land. And across that 1,250 square miles, there are only a few buildings. So the way the imposition of the grid by your hand against the grids or the circles put there by, by the military or, or, or other human activity compresses scale and space and raises questions of, of built and imposed in interesting ways. So speaking of, of the built environment, some of the pictures show a building that is called the Air Force Target Grid Building. It is a cinder block building that sort of approximates the, the shape of a house or an office building, but only in a vague notional way. <laughs> what is it? What did it do? And how did you choose to use it um, in your work? Well, I referred earlier to the fact that every site that I was able to photograph at Dugway had been highly vetted. This is the exception to that rule. Dugway, as you mentioned, is really vast. It's 800,000 acres. It's larger than the state of Rhode Island. <laughs> so as I was being driven from one site to another, I saw this building out in the landscape and I asked if we could stop so that I could take a look at it and then photograph it. And I think that my handler <laughs> was very, actually very respectful of my curiosity. So, and to him, this was nothing more than a storage shed. It's, it's actually 
empty. There's really nothing in it but a bunch of spiders. There's something about that ziggurat form of this building that was very curious, very kind of enigmatic and very opaque. It strangely echoed the mountain range behind it, but reminded me of some of, you know, Robert Smithson's early sculptural pieces, this, this way, this, you know, this kind of seriality going on in the building itself. And it was such a strange shape. It didn't seem like it could really have any useful function. Well, so I began to make photographs by circulating around the building and uh, made a sequence of images that's actually in the book as a, as a double gatefold. And it's such a curious, curious form. What I found out ultimately was that, was that the, the purpose of this building, its function, the reason for it having this kind of stepped shape is so that it could be seen from above, from an aerial perspective. And, and I should note that in your aerial pictures, we can indeed, we, we do see it. It's on the back cover of the book, for example. It's on the back cover of the book. It actually is a central element of a video piece that I made of these these uh, weapons testing targets. So it's made for Air Force pilots to see not just the it, but its shadow, which again was so striking. In the harsh desert light, its shadow becomes a pointer, a marker for Air Force pilots to make their way to the bombing range just beyond those mountains. So that's its function, it's a sign. And it's a marker, actually not the building itself, but its shadow. And that was so striking. And again, seemed to sort of refer to certain properties of photography itself, like the thing and its shadow somehow defining it. And for me, of course, making work from the air, the notion that this, this structure, reason for being, is to be viewed from above, I, I found just strange and, and, and compelling. But that's something of the sort of curious nature of, 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 you know, things happening at Dugway. The book also includes a number of pictures from 2016 that are, that is, that are drone footage. What do we see in those pictures and whose drone was that? At a certain point, I, as I started researching events happening at Dugway, I came upon the fact of, of, of some testing that they had done where I believe in 2010, 10 tons of chlorine gas were detonated in order to study how that chlorine gas traveled over time and space. So essentially how chlorine gas could be weaponized. That test was called Jackrabbit, which again, very strange to name something after probably what might be killed in the process of this test. And then again in 2015, Jackrabbit 2, where instead of 10 tons of chlorine gas being released, actually the first tests were chlorine and ammonia, sorry. The second set of Jackrabbit tests, 100 tons of only chlorine gas were, were released. And much to my surprise, I was able to find online quite a lot of information about these tests, including drone footage made for the military of the detonation of this chlorine gas and its dispersal. It's quite shocking and, and visceral to watch. And I, with permission, decided to take, I believe, five different frames of that initial moment of detonation 
a sequence in time that takes just a number of seconds showing the expanding plume of acid green chlorine gas as it's kind of billowing out and it's you know the sublime right but it's it's truly horrifying i mean the the test itself is putting at risk people that it's intended to save right there's something really quite confused i think and if i could jump in for a second we get that sense of that dichotomy and that that contradiction in the book itself so that the drone pictures this neon green cloud you know looks very organic and i think maybe every time you have one of those pictures in the book you turn the page and there is there is the grid there is the ordered forms of inscription on the land or that you have superimposed over the inscriptions on the land. So you get this conflict between the organic and the grid that's really kind of jarring. Right. And you may notice, too, that I decided to make the plume travel backwards. <laughs> so, so, so the last image of the plume that you see is actually the moment of detonation. So that was my own attempt to to negate this thing ever having happened, which of course I can't do. But I wanted to put the, the genie back in the bottle, if you will. We were talking a moment ago about how um, often in your work you make the invisible visible. What was the whole system live agent test chamber and why was it important for you to include? The whole system live agent test chamber was a very recently completed facility where chemical and biological toxins can be identified and neutralized. And as I understand it, 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 it magnified by many factors of 10, the ability of Dugway to do so on a you know, much, much larger scale. So I think it was completed at a cost of about $20 million. And when I visited Dugway, it was on the verge of going live. So there were, there were no chemical and biological toxins in the lab at that moment, but ultimately anthrax and sarin and other things like that would be involved. So I was given access to photograph them. I, I, I was interested, my background is in architecture and I've become very interested in the, the space of the laboratory environment as a kind of expression of hypermodernity, if you will, a kind of unbridled confidence in, in technology. And I'm sort of questioning that. So WISLAT, as they call it, the whole system live agent test chamber, it's designed to warn of the presence of airborne biological agents, like toxic agents, like anthrax, the plague, things that, substances that could be weaponized by, by, by terrorists or rogue nations. So it, to me, it looked almost like a Stanley Kubrick film set, you know, it's all about containment. And so Dugway's license to store and test live agents up to what's called biosafety level three. And so that's, those are elements for which there is a known vaccine or cure. And because live agents are used, WISLAT is designed for safety, right? And it has multiple negative pressure barriers and these ultra high performance filters. And the goal, the theory is that not even a molecule of biological agent from WISLAT could ever escape its bounds. What fascinated me was, you know, here's all these human efforts made at, at containment with this architecture of these labs. But what that doesn't take into account is, is human error, which is universal, of course. And as it turned out, many, many molecules of 
toxic biological agents have left Dugway because of human error. So in June of 2015, it was revealed that starting in 2007, live anthrax samples were sent from Dugway without the proper safeguards to as many as 68 different facilities, including commercial companies and academic institutions and federal laboratories. And basically radiation that was applied to the anthrax by Dugway in order to kill it and, and basically destroy the live spores didn't do so. And then the equipment that was designed to test for those live spores following irradiation failed. So it was, it was this kind of systemic failure, really, that really called into question the ability of Dugway to, to both you know, comprehend the toxins with which they're working and, 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 and to function with them. Uh, so there was an investigation by the Pentagon. And you know, it just didn't come as a surprise to me in a way, because I think, if anything, uh, I don't think I have a cynical view, but, but my view is human error is impossible to escape. It's built into our, right? It's built into us. And yet all of this technology and, and all of the architecture of these labs is sort of designed to, it assumes that, that we can escape our own, our own bounds in this way. It started out as an investigation for me into, into the sort of architectural spaces of, of Dugway and the architectural spaces of the lab, but it kind of came to illustrate the, the problems of Dugway and the limitations of it too. Yeah, you mentioned Kubrick. If Thomas Struth was the publicity photographer for a Kubrick film, this might have been where we'd have ended up. <laughs> David Maisel, thanks so much. Tyler, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.